Today we're going to talk about shock and multi-system organ failure. So sepsis and shock. We're going to focus on the nursing management of people that have alterations in health due to surgery and post-op complications. This is one of the complications that we're going to, or that we've already talked about. So shock is a syndrome, and remember, a syndrome is not a disease; it's a set of symptoms that occur together. So shock is a syndrome characterized by decreased tissue perfusion and impaired cellular metabolism. So we're going to talk about several different kinds of shock, but just keep in mind that that is the end result with all of them. Decreased tissue perfusion and impaired cellular metabolism. That means there's not enough oxygen getting to the toes. And I say toes because that's the furthest point from your body, but more important than the toes obviously is the brain and the heart and all of that, all the other organs that we'll talk about. So when I say there's not getting blood to the toes or oxygen to the toes, just keep in mind that means everywhere, okay? So that leads to an imbalance in the supply and demand for oxygen and nutrients. And when we don't have enough oxygen, uh, that, that's called hypoperfusion, tissue hypoxia, and that leads to lactic acid being built up. The waste products are being built up, they're not being transported out, and it leads to uh, anaerobic metabolism which also increases the acid. So somebody can be heading towards metabolic acidosis. We're not gonna to get too much into that right now. Um, just know that that can be fatal. So there are five different types of shock and let's talk about their effects on vital organs. So first let's talk about the heart. So we're gonna have decreased coronary artery perfusion. So think about the coronary arteries. So that's the arteries that encircle the heart like a crown. And they are the first arteries that come off of the aorta. So if you picture that, the big arch of the aorta, the first vessels that branch off that are the coronary arteries. And that's important because the heart knows that it has to take care of itself before it can take care of anybody else. So it takes the freshest, most oxygenated blood right out of the lungs. It's coming right out of the lungs into that aortic arch, right into the heart. Okay, so take a lesson from the heart there. You can't care for anyone else unless you care for yourself first. So there's gonna be decreased coronary artery perfusion. That means the heart muscle is gonna be less effective as a pump. That's gonna give you a decreased stroke volume. Stroke volume is the amount of blood that's coming out of the heart with each beat. So that is gonna impact your cardiac output because cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. And it's also gonna impact your blood pressure. The brain, decreased oxygen is um, going to harm the brain. You're gonna have decreased brain function, confusion, eventually unconsciousness. So that's your first problem right there, the heart and the brain. Those are um, pretty major effects. Next, let's talk about the lungs. We're gonna have decreased blood volume leads to decreased oxygen being available. So there's decreased gas exchange happening at the capillary level. That means there's less blood of getting oxygenated in the lungs. There's less blood circulating, so there's less blood going to the lungs, so less oxygen is infusing into the blood, and then again, that, that leads to hypoperfusion. The liver, there's glycogen stores in the liver, that's how we store glucose, and they're gonna be depleted by an excess of circulating epinephrine. Now, where did all the epinephrine come from? What leads to epinephrine? The stress response. So this is a stressful uh, period for the body, right? So the stress response is happening. Epinephrine is being secreted in an effort to raise the blood uh, blood pressure, blood volume. So then metabolic acids that are normally detoxified in the liver cause acidosis. 
So the toxins are not being detoxified. All this epinephrine is being secreted. All the glucose that's being stored in the liver is, is being depleted. So there's some other major problems. Then let's talk about the kidneys. A drop in cardiac output causes a decrease in blood flow through the kidneys, decreased urinary output and renal failure result. There has to be a certain level of pressure to get blood to the kidneys. And if the kidneys are, if there's not enough pressure to get the blood filtered through the kidneys, uh, that can lead to kidney failure. So not only does it lead to things not being processed and urine not being made, uh, if there's not enough pressure to perfuse the kidneys, the kidneys are gonna fail. And what we wanna think about there is when pressure falls below 90, that's when we need to take action. And renal failure can occur within 20 minutes. So that's why we need to stay on top of our blood pressures. And if they are um, normal, if they're trending low, we need to take them more recently, not as long as every four hours, maybe every half hour, hour, when they're unstable like that. And we need to take action as quickly as possible. So give them a fluid bolus or something to bring that pressure up. We'll talk more about that later. So we have five different classifications of shock. Hypovolemic shock, which is where we have a decrease in intravascular volume. Cardiogenic means something has happened to the heart. Septic is a circulatory shock resulting from an infection of some kind, any kind. We'll get into that later. Neurogenic results from a loss of sympathetic tone causing relative hypovolemia. You remember the difference between relative and absolute hypovolemia. And anaphylactic is resulting from a severe allergic reaction. So we'll get into all those in greater detail. There is a little chart that, sh that tells um, just a little bit about each one of them. So make sure you review that with your study group and make sure that you understand the basics behind each different type of shock. We're gonna go into a lot greater detail later. But first, before we do that, I wanna tell you that there are 60,000 miles of vessels in your circulatory system, 60,000 miles. We each have four and a half to eight liters of blood. It depends on your body size, but generally it's seven to eight percent of your body weight. Blood pressure is the driving force for effective circulation. So normal blood pressure values don't always indicate that we have effective oxygen delivered throughout the body. Okay, there may not be enough oxygen available even though the blood pressure is good. We know that automated blood pressure devices tend to overestimate true arterial blood pressure in some patients, and that's why when someone's in the OR or in the ICU, when it's a more critical environment, they're gonna put an arterial line in, which gives them the exact arterial blood pressure measurement. About 20% of people have a difference in, the, in blood pressure between arms, and which arm is the better measurement? Generally the left, okay? So blood pressure, so we talked about cardiac output a second ago, I mentioned it. Cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate. So the stroke volume times the heart rate equals your cardiac output. How fast is the heart beating times how much is being pumped out with every beat, okay? So moving forward from that, blood pressure now is cardiac output versus systemic vascular resistance, or you may see it called peripheral vascular resistance. It's the same thing. That means how much resistance is your body are the vessels in your body uh, putting forth? How much resistance does the heart have to fight against as it's pumping the blood? So the relationship between those two is what gives you arterial blood pressure, cardiac output versus systemic vascular resistance. Gerontologic considerations, clinical manifestations of any imbalance we know can be subtle and they can happen more, uh, more quickly, more easily. Fluid deficit in the elderly can cause delirium. They have a decreased cardiac reserve reduce renal function, 
they're easily dehydrated, they may forget to drink or their hypothalamus is not telling them to drink, and they have age-related thinning of the skin and loss of strength and elasticity. So just remember, in the elderly, these symptoms may come up more quickly and they may be more subtle. So shock, there are two broad classifications. We have low blood flow or maldistribution of blood flow. So we're gonna get into each one of these. So with low blood flow, the two in there are cardiogenic or hypovolemic. So let's start with cardiogenic. So genesis is the beginning Cardio is heart, so that means it began in the heart. Something is wrong with the heart. Now, it can be either a systolic or a diastolic dysfunction. Either way, it leads to a decrease in cardiac output. So less blood is being circulated. We can have a decrease in stroke volume. That leads to a decrease in cardiac output. There could be a dysrhythmia. Um, anything that's happening in the heart is going can change the cardiac output, which can lead to cardiogenic shock, and which is uh, the unavailability of oxygen. So it's the failure of the heart to pump blood forward adequately. There can be necrosis of the left ventricle and that's the leading cause of a heart attack on the left side, left ventricle, that's called the Widowmaker if you have an MI of the left ventricle. And that's going to mean that uh, the, the ventricle is not able to pump the blood and thus the oxygen to the rest of the body. So let's look at some causes of cardiogenic shock. It could be coronary or non-coronary. If it's coronary, it's systolic dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction, dysrhythmias, or anything that compromises cardiac output. So let's think about what's happening in each one of these. If it's a systolic dysfunction, what does the systolic do? That pumps your blood forward. So if there's a dysfunction in the systolic system, that means that blood is not being pumped forward. If there's diastolic dysfunction, diastole is when the vessels are relaxing and filling. So that means we're gonna have ineffective filling, ineffective filling of the vessel for the blood to be pumped out. So it's pumping uh, a smaller amount of blood out. Dysrhythmias, if the heart's not beating correctly, if it's kind of you know jiggling in there like AFib, it's just kind of vibrating, um, that's not adequately going to pump blood forward. Anything compromises cardiac output. There could be uh, cardiomyopathy or an MI blunt cardiac injury. Every year you hear about a kid that got hit in the chest with a baseball in Little League and that happens at just the right second that stops the heart and that can cause cardiogenic shock and death. They can have severe systemic or pulmonary hypertension. So think about what's happening there. You've got a lot of hypertension. The blood pressure is high. The heart is having to pump very hard against it. If it's in the lungs, think about what part of the heart that's going to be. It's going to be the right side. And then if it's systemic, the side of the heart that's pumping to the body is the left side. So it, whether it's pulmonary or systemic hypertension, it can lead to a breakdown of one side of the heart. Cardiac tamponade, anybody know what that is? That is where there's blood or fluid surrounding the myocardium. So we have the pericardial sac, the pericardium, and it's supposed to be right up next to the myocardium, the muscle. There's a little bit of lubrication in there, a little bit of fluid to allow it to beat for the heart to pump. But what happens is that some fluid or blood or something gets in there into that space and it compresses the myocardium. So it doesn't allow the heart to fully expand and, and pump and beat. So that's cardiac tamponade. Something is between the heart muscle and the sac, the myocardium and the pericardium. Okay, then we have non-coronary causes. 
Um, a lot of different things here. Hypoxemia, acidosis, hypocalcemia, hypoglycemia, attention pneumothorax. A lot of things going on there. We're not going to get too involved in, in uh, any one of those right now. Cardiomyopathies. So that means um, uh, damage, a problem within the heart muscle itself. So valvular damage or valvular dysfunction. Um, cardiac tamponade again, dysrhythmias. So in other words, it's anything that stresses the heart. So what are we going to see on assessment? Probably hypotension. Decreased renal perfusion is happening. And how do we know that? That's because they have a decreased urinary output, less than 30 milliliters an hour. Again, that's why eyes and nose are always so important. They're going to have pallor, cool, clammy skin, poor peripheral pulses. You're going to have a hard time feeling their pulses. Delayed capillary refill. A narrowed pulse pressure. And remember again what pulse pressure is. Tachycardia. Tachypnea, the heart's beating really fast and they're trying to breathe really fast because they're trying to get oxygen to the toes. They may have pulmonary congestion. That may be what's causing the problem. They're going to be disoriented, have anxiety, agitation, restlessness, confusion. What do those words sound like? Oxygen deficiency, right? Because that's what's happening. They have an oxygen deficiency. And they're going to have chest discomfort or chest pain. So our interventions, we want to give them oxygen, obviously, because that's what they need, right? So we're going to administer oxygen. We're going to give morphine sulfate, and that does a few different things. Morphine helps with pain. It vasodilates, which may help more blood circulate, and it also relieves anxiety. We should prepare for intubation. They may need to be intubated with mechanical ventilation. They're probably going to get diuretics or nitrates or vasopressors, some kind of medications that will all be up to the the crash team or the res uh, rapid response team or the, or the doctor whoever's on the case right now. And then we're gonna monitor ABGs and treat any imbalances that we find. So I have a couple of charts in here in the PowerPoint that show the flow of the different kinds of shock. So at the top it says primary ventricular ischemia, structural problems or dysrhythmias. You'll see that all three of those lead to a systolic dysfunction which means there's ineffective forward movement of blood. So if you follow the arrows down, that means there's a decrease in stroke volume, a decrease in cardiac output, which leads to a decrease in cellular oxygen supply, which means there's decreased tissue perfusion, impaired cellular metabolism, which then leads to anaerobic metabolism and death. Then on the other side where it starts with diastolic dysfunction, ineffective filling, that too decreases your stroke volume and then you can follow that all down again to the left, or going back to the right, increases pulmonary pressure, which leads to pulmonary edema, which again leads to low oxygenation, because if there's fluid in the lungs or swelling in the lungs, they're not able to exchange gas, so you're gonna have a decreased oxygenation, decreased cellular oxygen supply, decreased tissue perfusion, impaired cellular metabolism, and death. So I'll give you a hint that all these charts are gonna start out differently, but they're all gonna end up the same because that is the end result of shock, right? Impaired cellular metabolism. There's not enough oxygen at the, at the cell level, at the tissues. Next, we're gonna move into hypovolemic shock. So this is when there's a reduced intravascular volume. There's not enough oxygen getting through to where it needs to go. So there's not gonna be aerobic metabolism that leads to anaerobic metabolism, which leads to the buildup of acids metabolic acidosis, cellular damage, cell death, ultimately. So hypovolemic shock is the most common type of shock. It is the standard, and it's what's used to compare all the others. 
It can be related to a number of different things, hemorrhage or blood loss, dehydration or fluid loss, any kind of reduction of intravascular volume. So whenever there's a, a decrease in blood volume in the vascular space, that leads to insufficient oxygen delivery going to the cells. It is an emergency. The heart cannot pump enough blood around to satisfy the needs of the body. So the types of hypovolemic shock, there's absolute hypovolemia and relative hypovolemia. So we'll talk about absolute first. This is the loss of intravascular fluid volume and it is absolutely gone, okay? With hemorrhage, the blood is out of the body, right? It's on the floor. GI loss, the, the fluid is out of the body through vomiting or diarrhea or an NG tube suction or fistula drainage. Diabetes insipidus, what is that? Doesn't have anything to do with sugar, right? What does it have to do with? A decrease in ADH. So that's when they are diuresing large amounts of dilute urine. They're losing a lot of fluid. Hyperglycemia, how does that make us lose volume? We have a lot of sugar in the blood and the sugar has to come out of the body, but we can't just squeeze out sugar particles, can we? No, uh, we, it has to go out in fluid, so urine. So we're gonna be peeing more and that's gonna relieve the hyperglycemia by getting the sugar out of the body. Anything else that causes diuresis or excessive perspiration. So all of these things, the fluid is out of the body. Okay, that's why it's absolute hypovolemia. It is absolutely gone. Next is relative hypovolemia. So this is where the fluid moves out of the vascular space into the extravascular space. So it could be going interstitial or an intracavitary space. So this is known as third spacing. And third spacing is when fluid is in a space that does you no good. So it can be in the abdomen. Ascites is common. We see a lot of fluid uh, in someone's abdomen. And so if we look at this picture in the PowerPoint, there's somebody with a really huge belly, obviously full of fluid. The vessels are engorged. You can see them there. Uh, the skin is stretched. So it looks like they have a lot of fluid on board, right? They are in hypervolemia. Wrong. They are hypovolemic because where is all that fluid not? It's not in the vascular space. And if it's not in the vascular space, it's not doing you any good, so they're in hypovolemia. So that's relative hypovolemia. We haven't lost fluid from the body, but it's not in the vascular space where it's supposed to be. So again, there's a chart. And we have relative hypovolemia on the left, absolute hypovolemia on the right. They both lead to the exact same thing. So progress down the chart. Either way, we have a decreased circulating volume. That gives you decreased venous return, so that's the lack of blood coming back to the heart. That's gonna decrease your stroke volume because there's simply not enough blood available to give you a good stroke volume. That lowers your cardiac output. That decreases your cellular oxygen supply, so you have a decrease in tissue perfusion, and that leads to impaired cellular metabolism, which leads to what? Death. So see, it's all exactly the same as the other one. So what we're gonna see on assessment when someone is in hypovolemic shock, they're gonna have restlessness, anxiety, confusion, agitation, sleepiness. What does all that sound like? Oxygen, you should be yelling that by now. Low oxygen. They're gonna have a weak and rapid pulse. It's gonna be difficult to feel because there's so little blood circulating. The pulse is gonna feel, what do we say? Weak and thready, weak and thready. And it's gonna be quick because again, the heart is racing. The heart is trying to pump what little oxygen there is around the rest of the body. And it's gonna be weak and thready because how big is the blood vessel at that time when you're dehydrated? How big are your vessels? 
very small. They're going to be tiny like a thread, and they're going to be very difficult to feel. And when we do feel that small little vessel, we're going to feel the, the heartbeat very uh, weakly. So they're going to have hypotension, again, because we have less volume, and when we have less volume, we have less pressure. Less volume, less pressure. They're going to have probably shallow tachypnea. Um, they're going to be breathing very quickly, trying to um, compensate, trying to get more oxygen in. They're going to have cool, clammy skin. And the reason we have cool, clammy skin is that we don't need the blood at our surface right now, do we? No, where do we need it? At the vital organs, so in the core. So the blood's going to be shunted away from the periphery in an effort to perfuse the vital organs. We want to get the blood to the brain, to the kidneys, to the heart. We don't need it in our skin right now. So the skin's going to get cool and clammy. We're going to have a reduced urine output. A couple reasons for that. Number one, the kidneys aren't being perfused because there's less blood circulating. So there's not enough blood to perfuse the kidneys. There's not enough pressure to push the fluid through there to filter it out and to make urine. So we don't have enough urine being made. Also, even if we did, the body's going to hold on to it. The body's going to reabsorb as much of the fluid as they can because to, in an effort to try to fix the hypovolemia. We have a low fluid volume. We're not going to be peeing it out right now. We're going to hang on to it. They're also going to have a decreased preload, which, which I mentioned in the chart. That means there's less blood coming back to the heart. That lowers your stroke volume, and that then lowers your cardiac output. So compensated shock. A patient can compensate for 15% loss of their blood volume, and that's around 750 milliliters in an average person. A further loss of 15 to 30% activates the sympathetic nervous system, and think about all the things that happens there. Increase in heart rate, increased cardiac output, trying to raise the blood pressure, raising the respiration rate, the stress response, okay? If it's greater than 20%, the blood volume is going to need to be replaced. So compensation, the body is trying to fix itself. The body has so many mechanisms and the body systems are so sophisticated that they're able to fix themselves when things start going bad. If it gets to decompensated shock, that means all these compensatory mechanisms that have been working are now failing. So we're not able, we haven't been able to bring the blood pressure back up or to bring more volume back into the vascular space. So then they're in decompensated shock. There's a chart here with stages of hypovolemic shock. Now, you don't have to know every little thing about all of this stuff, but this is just kind of for your reference. Read it once or twice, kind of get a little bit familiar with it. Um, but it's just really, this is uh, nice to know information, not need to know. So don't focus on the minutia. Just understand the broad concepts of these different kinds of shock. And another thing, when trying to differentiate all the different kinds of shock, I would suggest that you make some kind of a chart and with columns or do the concept mapping, however you'd like to do it. But um, all of these shocks have the same end result, right? But what gets the patient there is different in every one of them. So make note of the things that are unique to each different kind of shock. And that is what's going to help you answer a question correctly or help you identify what type of shock it is based on the symptoms that you see the patients experiencing. There are some unique things with each one of these. So figure out what they are and focus on remembering those. So our interventions, we need to identify and treat the cause. Why do they have low blood volume? Where's the blood going? Or where's the fluid going? Let's find it and stop it. So if they're bleeding, obviously we need to hold pressure and stop the bleeding. If they're losing GI contents, if they have diarrhea or they're vomiting a lot, let's, let's try to stop that. Uh, let's increase their fluid. When we see somebody vomiting or having diarrhea, we need to increase their IV fluid stat because 
um, they're, they're going to just keep losing it, you know, where they're going to keep on losing it and losing it. So we don't want to um, send them into hypovolemic shock. When we see something happening like that early on, let's, uh, let's intervene and try to fix it. So focus on ABCs. Uh, we need to give them oxygen because, again, that's what they need. So obtain and maintain IV access. If they don't have an IV, get one in there real quick. Maybe even a secondary one if they've lost a lot of fluid. And monitor the level of consciousness, trying to keep them awake. We want to uh, monitor the level of consciousness because as it goes down, that means there's less blood going to the brain. And, and we want to keep blood going to the brain, right? Okay, the next, next phase is the distributive shock or vasogenic. Vasogenic means it starts in the vessels. So this is a maldistribution of blood flow to the tissues from acute vasodilation without expansion of the intravascular volume. So think about what that means. Maybe read that again. Acute vasodilation, the blood vessels have gotten bigger without expansion of intravascular volume. That means the blood vessels are bigger, but the fluid volume in there hasn't changed. There's still just a little bit of fluid in there in these giant blood vessels. So that is uh, uh, that decreases your blood pressure because we have less fluid flowing through a larger space. Think about your water pipes. If you think about a water pipe um, that comes from the street into your house, it might be like 10 or 12 inches and there's a little bit of water flowing in there, how is the pressure there? It's pretty low, right? But then you look under your sink and you've got like an inch or inch and a half pipe coming into the house. Same amount of water under higher pressure because it's a smaller tube, okay? Higher pressure in a smaller area. So with these vasogenic shocks, the blood vessels have gotten bigger, the fluid volume hasn't changed, so that means the pressure is going to be very low. And the three different types of distributive shock are neurogenic, anaphylactic, and septic. So let's start with neurogenic. Where do you think that arises? In the nervous system. So what happens here is the parasympathetic stimulus overrides the sympathetic stimulus. So think about what's happening. Parasympathetic is rest and digest, right? So that relaxes everything, brings you back down. Well, in this case, it's not, it's, it's overpowering the sympathetic stimulus. So the Sympathetic stuff is not happening. You're not able to bring the blood pressure up. You're not able to increase the heart rate. You're not able to increase the respiratory rate. So the parasympathetic is just saying, hey, let's just relax. And then you just relax into such a state that you're vasodilated. You become very hypotensive. There's massive vasodilation is what happens here. And that's bad because that greatly lowers the blood pressure. So what happens with neurogenic shock, it usually occurs in about 30 minutes after a spinal cord injury usually T5 and above. It could be some kind of spinal anesthesia. It could be an injury, um, anything that's affecting the spine. It can last up to six weeks. That's a very long time to be having your body in crisis. So the patient has adequate blood volume. They haven't lost any blood, right? There's no break in the skin. There's no break in a blood vessel. It's just an injury to the spinal cord. So there's been no blood loss, but they're profoundly vasodilated. The blood vessels are huge. So that means the blood pressure is very low. So what's happening, there's central nervous system damage from that spinal cord injury. That tells the vessels to relax, and then that leads to massive vasodilation. And when we're vasodilated, think about it, if you're vasodilated out in your arms and your hands and your fingertips, there's gonna be pooling of blood out there. Is blood doing you any good in your hands? No, I mean, we need a little bit, but we don't need all of it pooled there. So blood pools in the extremities and that is what gives you hypotension. So we don't have enough blood circulating 
in the core to perfuse our, um, our vital organs. So our assessments, we're gonna have warm, dry skin. This is the only kind of shock that has warm, dry skin. And think about it, there's all this blood pooling in the periphery, that's why it's warm. That's the opposite of the other shocks where we have cool, clammy skin because all the blood is being pulled from the surface of the skin. In neurogenic, we can't do that, it's just stuck there. We also have the resulting hypotension because, again, the, the pooling. Bradycardia, now, th this is different too. The pulse is gonna be variable with everybody, but it's just not gonna be normal, but it can tend to, to run low. They're also gonna have temperature dysregulation. They're gonna have what's called poikilothermia, which is like a snake where it adapts to the temperature of the room. So they're not gonna be cool and clammy, they're probably gonna be warm, and their temperature is gonna fluctuate with their environment. So interventions for neurogenic shock, do you think they need oxygen? Yes, they do, because they're having trouble circulating it. Let's lift the head of the bed, give them an IV access if they don't have one already. We're gonna give them very large volumes of normal saline in their IV to try to raise that BP and then continue to maintain it. Because like I said, this, last, this can last a long time. We don't just fix it by giving them a liter of fluid. They're gonna need large volumes for a while. And then they need medications. They're gonna need the sympathomimetic medications because remember we said that the body is resistant. The nervous system is now resistant to the effects of the sympathetic nervous system. So we need to give them medications that are going to mimic it. And that's called sympathomimetics. So we've got atropine, vasopressors, dopamine, uh, vasopressin, um, anything that's going to take the place of the uh, sympathetic nervous system. So anything that's going to raise the blood pressure and vasoconstrict to try to bring that back into normal. Next is anaphylactic shock. So anaphylaxis is a severe life-threatening allergic reaction. It's most commonly caused by foods, medications, insect stings like bees, and exposure to latex. And that, of course, is a big one we need to worry about in the healthcare setting. So we always want to know if someone's allergic to latex. So anaphylactic shock is a maldistribution of blood flow. So again, we haven't lost any blood, it's just not where it's supposed to be. So they have massive vasodilation. And in fact, the, the, uh, due to the vasodilation and the vascular permeability that increases, this results in the transfer of 50% of the intravascular fluid to the extravascular space within 10 minutes. So half their blood has now gone extravascular very quickly. They have a release of mediators, they have an overproduction of histamine, and then that increased capillary permeability. So there's um, kind of the chemical stuff listed here about the antigen and the B cell, the IgE. I'm not going to get into that. You can go back to your A&P if you want to refresh yourself on that. The signs and symptoms, um, there's a, a body chart here that shows everything that's going wrong within the body. Um, most common manifestations we see are on the skin and the airway. So the skin, they're gonna get hives, itchy, flushing, redness, and then swelling of the lips, tongue, and throat. And of course, that's our big concern because that's the airway. So uh, we need to give them something to open up those airways before it closes. So there's another little chart that uh, breaks down the body systems and shows what is being, uh, what, what they're experiencing in each of those areas. Uh, so on top of the, uh, uh, in addition to the skin and the respiratory, the GI, they may have nausea, stomach pain or cramps, vomiting, diarrhea, cardiovascular, they're gonna have dizziness, weak pulse, fainting, shock, loss of consciousness, and neurologic 
they may feel anxiety or a sense of impending doom. That's always bad. So interventions manage the airway, keep it open. So assess it for patency and respiratory efficiency. Are they breathing? We need to remove the causative agent. So whatever's bothering them, if it's latex, take off the latex gloves, take out the latex fully, uh, remove latex tape, anything latex on them, get it off. If it's something they ate, they uh, if, if it's been very uh, quickly, they may do a gastric lavage, but they don't do that that often because if you've eaten something at home or at a restaurant, by the time you get to the hospital, it may already be out of your stomach. Uh, but a gastric lavage is where they uh, instill fluid and then suck it out and they're trying to get all this stuff out of there. We're gonna check their O2 sat and give them oxygen. We're gonna do uh, ABGs and vitals. Put ice to the site, so if it was uh, a bee sting or something, put some ice on there, that's gonna help with the swelling. And then medications, epinephrine is probably gonna be the first thing we're gonna give, or albuterol, which would be an inhaler. Both of those things are gonna open up the airways. And then antihistamines like Benadryl, steroids to um, combat the swelling, vasopressors to shrink up the blood vessels to raise the pressure again, and then isotonic IV fluids. And we wanna give isotonic because isotonic fluids are gonna stay in the vascular space. They're not gonna diffuse out, and we need to build up the vascular volume again because it's been lost uh, through the increase in vascular permeability. The next thing we're gonna talk about is septic shock, and there's lots to talk about here. So first of all, the three major effects of septic shock, there's vasodilation, there's maldistribution of blood flow, and there's myocardial depression. So a person might be normal volemic, but the acute dilation leads to hypovolemia and hypotension, and that would be relative hypovolemia. So again, they've got the vasodilation, blood pools, and it's not in the core where it needs to be. So septic shock is a life-threatening condition, it occurs as a complication of sepsis, wherein the body's defense mechanisms are exaggerated. So there's an increase in inflammation and coagulation and a decrease in fibrinolysis. So that means the increase in coagulation means clots are likely to form. The decrease in fibrinolysis means that we're unable to break them up. So they're going to have, they could potentially have a lot of clots all over the place. So sepsis is a systemic inflammatory response to a documented or suspected infection. And it can be bacterial, viral, fungal, it can, it can really be anything. It can come from anywhere. Um, fungal are the least common, but the most deadly. So the bacteria or the toxin, whatever it is, leaks out to the tissues, uh, causes, causes leakage to the tissues, which leads to hypovolemia. Severe sepsis is sepsis plus a side of organ dysfunction. And then septic shock occurs when there's sepsis with hypotension despite fluid resuscitation and tissue perfusion abnormalities. So we're giving them fluids, it's not working, they're going downhill, that's when it's considered septic shock. So again, it's a maldistribution of blood flow. So some symptoms, systemically, we're gonna see confusion or disorientation, so that's your, your brain acting up. Uh, the lungs, you're gonna have shortness of breath. Heart's gonna be beating fast because again, with all the shocks, it's an oxygen problem, we're trying to get oxygen around the body. They may have a fever or shivering or feeling very cold, extreme pain or discomfort kind of anywhere, and they could have clammy or sweaty skin, so not, def not um, definitive there. Whatever is going on, it's a medical emergency. 
time is very important in sepsis and there are um, some sepsis bundles that are put out by the CDC. I have a lot of additional information on sepsis for you to look at on Canvas so make sure that you do that just so you have a better idea. It is a national health crisis and it's something that we're really trying over the last several years we've really been trying to get a handle on and um, decrease the incidence of it because it has a really high fatality rate and in many cases there's no reason why it should have happened. So clinical manifestations, um, early on they're gonna have an increased cardiac output. Later they'll have a decreased blood pressure. Their skin can go from flushed, which is red, to pallor, which is pale, to cyanosis, which is blue. So red, white, and blue, very patriotic. The skin can peel, that's weird, that's the only thing, uh, sepsis is the only place where that happens. Uh, tachypnea, hyperventilation, temperature dysregulation, they're just unable to maintain. So like I said, they might be shivering, they might be uh, very hot, very cold, clammy, sweaty. Um, it just kind of, it goes every which way. Decrease urine output. And um, again, we've talked about the reasons for that. The blood is just not getting to the kidneys and then also the body has a fluid problem. So the body's trying to hold on to it. Altered, altered neurologic status, GI dysfunction and respiratory failure is common. So there's an acronym for sepsis. The S is shivering, E is extreme pain. P is pallor, S is sleepy, I is I feel like I might die, and S is short of breath. So some facts about sepsis. Uh, those over the age of 65 account for 60 to 80% of all sepsis cases. Um, that's because they have a weakened immune system, and as we know, they have a lot of other chronic problems. And then they don't have the biologic reserves to handle these shifts or little things that happen can, to them can um, lead to a major complication. 90% have a condition that puts them at risk, like pneumonia, a UTI, some kind of gut infection, or skin infection. And that's 90% of people that have sepsis, not just the old people. In about half the cases, the organism is unidentified. They don't know that somebody has an infection or that something's going on in them. All, all of a sudden, they just start really going downhill quickly. Pancreatitis, burns, and trauma are big causes that occur without infection. 80% of sepsis develops outside the hospital. And every hour you delay giving antibiotics leads to a 7.6 increase in mortality. So we need to get the antibiotics started uh, very quickly. So sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Like I said, it's a public health crisis. It costs about $20 billion a year. That was in 2017, so probably up a little bit now. The mortality varies by state. In California, it's about up to 25%. It occurs, the, the greatest fatality is in African-American men, and also it is um, more common in the winter, and that's due to increased respiratory infections. So somebody can get a cold or the flu, or, and then that leads to pneumonia, and then that leads to sepsis, and they can be dead in a matter of days. So with sepsis, there's some kind of an invader. It's a bacterial, a toxin, a, a virus, a fungus. Some kind of, something is invading, the body responds. But that response leaves the site and goes systemic. There's too many pro-inflammatory mediators, and so what happens is a malignant intravascular inflammation. It's uncontrolled, unregulated, and self-sustaining. It just keeps getting bigger and worse. So sepsis protocols were introduced in 2001 but have changed and morphed and evolved a lot throughout the years. So there are updates um, on that on campus. 
So one of the first things we want to do is measure their lactate. So we'll do um, blood work on that and blood cultures because we want to figure out what the infection is. While we're waiting for blood cultures to come back, we're going to start broad spectrum antibiotics. And as I said, every hour of delay of antibiotics leads to 7.6 increase in mortality. So we're going to start antibiotics right away, some kind of broad spectrum like probably vancomycin or something like that. So there are um, some other things that we can do. We can um, raise their feet 45 degrees, and if the blood pressure goes up, that's considered a dynamic response. That's a good thing. Um, when somebody is real bad, usually only when they're in the ICU and they're, they're um, possibly intubated, they'll do proning, which is where they have them in a bed that rotates and goes upside down. Proning can increase capillary exchange by opening up capillaries that were blocked with fluid. So gravity, we use gravity to just help move the fluid around within the body. Some other things with sepsis, 47% don't ever see the ICU. That means it happens everywhere. It can happen on the floor, it can happen in the community. The incidence has increased over 83% over the last decade. And it is the most expensive reason for hospitalization. So always, always ask yourself in clinical, what's the worst thing that can happen to my patient today? And sepsis should always be on your list. Okay, so we want to look for the signs, identify things early. So are they vasodilated? Um, how's their MAP, their mean arterial pressure? That should be calculated with your vitals. It's not just something we ignore. Um, that should be greater than 65. So a lot of the hospitals will have little cards. Um, you should ask your unit educator. They'll have cards that has uh, sepsis signs, um, and there's several different ones of them. Um, and different things to watch out for, like if the temperature's over 100, heart rate's over 100, and the uh, BP is below 100, that's called the rule of 100s. Um, with that, you know, th then we need to investigate further and consider sepsis protocols. So um, just find those on your, on your unit. It's nothing that you need to know now, but it's definitely uh, a good thing to have with you in clinical or, or, or when you're at work. So some symptoms, we're going to see fever, chills, rapid breathing, and heart rate. They may have a rash, they'll have um, confusion and disorientation. Remember, oxygen words, they're not getting oxygen, so um, think oxygen always. So confusion, delirium. Their SVP might fall below 90. Um, they won't be urinating, and they won't be responding to um, fluid resuscitation probably. So they're gonna need additional medications. The, again, the organs, the consequences of septic shock. So um, the lungs, there's gonna be edema and diffuse alveolar damage. So if the alveola are damaged, they're not gonna be allowing gas exchange, are they? So that's an acute lung injury. And then um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Pulmonary edema can occur. Hypoxia, less than 90. They can have a PaO2 of less than 70. Tachypnea. Respiratory rate is so important and it's often missed. So we really need to assess the respiratory rate and the work of breathing as well. Next is the liver. Um, the, the liver is your first line of defense in clearing bacteria from the gut. Build up, build up of toxins systemically can occur. Uh, you'll have increased liver enzymes if they, if they draw those. They may be jaundiced if it's getting pretty bad. The PT will be off because clotting factors come from the liver and they'll have decreased albumin. And think about what albumin does. What is albumin? It's a protein and it holds fluid in the vascular space. If we don't have any albumin, the fluid does not stay in the vascular space, it diffuses out. 
So that's part of what's happening in sepsis because the liver is damaged, we don't have albumin, and so the increase in vascular permeability leads to all the fluid going out of the vascular space. So that's um, just another thing to think about. The um, kidneys are not being perfused, and so they're also gonna be hypoxemic, and so they could, they could suffer damage, cell damage. Um, early rapid response calls lead to better outcomes. That's kind of obvious, I think. Um, don't be afraid to call rapid response when somebody's BP starts falling because we want to save the kidneys. So when the kidneys are damaged, we're going to have oliguria or anuria, increased creatine if they draw that on the labs, and they'll have increased mortality in those that develop kidney failure. So let's try to save them before they get to there. The cardiovascular system, obviously that's going to be at risk. The, um, the heart's going to have ischemia and then it's not going to, you know, dead tissue doesn't pump very well, so it's not going to um, pump. And then the CNS, the confusion, delirium, altered consciousness, we talked about that. So what we have to fight this is the sepsis six, and that's oxygen, blood cultures, antibiotics, fluid challenge, lactate levels, and maintain urine output. So, Interventions for sepsis. We want to find and control the septic focus. So figure out what is causing the problem and fix it. So if it's, if their IV looks like it's infected or they have a central line looks like it's infected, um, get that out. Or a Foley, if they have a UTI and a Foley, get that out. Wherever the infection is, let's try to fix it and start the antibiotics as fast as possible. Broad spectrum antibiotics. So Vanco, penicillin, cephalosporins, Fluid replacement and cardiopulmonary support is going to be very important. So we're going to give vasopressors and they're going to shrink up the blood vessels so they constrict and that helps to raise the pressure. Inotropic therapy, similar effect. Corticosteroids to reduce swelling because there's massive inflammation going on around the body and we want to try to um, arrest that. And then of course oxygen. Everybody always needs oxygen in any kind of septic situation. Close monitoring, labs, vital signs, INO, and if we had been on top of that in the first place, we might have avoided sepsis or seen it as the person was going downhill, we might have been able to um, uh, stop the progression of that. Nutritional management. Uh, there's been some controversy about this, but um, studies have shown that they want to do enteral feeding rather than parenteral, so they want to put it right into the gut to help the gut get back moving and, and help repair itself. So if they're going to do feeding supplement, it should go through um, either an NG tube or a, or a G tube right into the, to the stomach. Intensive insulin therapy. That seems really strange, right? There didn't say anything about anybody being diabetic, right? So let's think of some reasons why we might need insulin therapy. So um, it decreases the inflammatory response. And let's just accept that now. We're not gonna go into that any further. So it decreases the inflammatory response, just know that. Uh, think about what else is happening. What medications have we given them in the last slide that might increase their blood sugar? Glucocorticoids, corticosteroids. And they also have the stress response, which we know increases blood sugar, major stress response, right? It's blood sugar side. Let's give them insulin, that's gonna help. It's gonna save fluid loss. Think about that. How does insulin save fluid loss? Well, we talked a while ago about diuresis from hyperglycemia. So we already said these people have high blood sugar. The body 
needs to get rid of that sugar. It's going to come out in volume, so they're going to be diuresing a lot. If we give them insulin, it's going to help move some of that glucose into the cells, get it out of the blood, get it out of the urine, and then they're not going to be voiding as much. That helps save fluid. The other thing is bacteria love sugar, and they have a bacteria growing in them. They have some kind of an infection. So if we um, decrease the amount of sugar available, that's going to help stop the bacteria from growing so much. Another thing that may or may not be happening is the pancreas might be sick. Uh, I say it may or may not be because, well, pancreatitis is one cause of sepsis, okay, so there's that. But then otherwise, if you look back a couple slides with the body that had all the different things that were going on, the pancreas can suffer ischemia. It's going to have decreased insulin production, which is going to result in hyperglycemia. So the pancreas, along with everything else, gets sick. There's multi-system organ failure that's happening with sepsis, okay? So the pancreas is sick. And so we need additional insulin. So there was uh, four or five reasons there why insulin therapy is required for sepsis. And then external cooling is going to be important. So if somebody is, um, you know, burning up with fever, we need to cool them off. So they can do cooling blankets. Uh, they can put ice packs in their armpits or around the neck or the groin, the really hot areas that will help uh, cool the blood as it passes through. So those are some of the different interventions that we can use, that we can do. So let's talk about the stages of shock a little bit more here. And again, don't get hung up on the minutia and the stages. I just want you to have a basic understanding. So identify the different kinds of shock and then what you as a nurse are gonna do about it, okay? So in the compensatory stage of shock, the sympathetic nervous system is active and we, should, we probably can see it, right? So they're gonna have vasoconstriction, increased heart rate, increased heart contractility that's going to help maintain the BP and the cardiac output. So if we saw the BP kind of falling and then all of a sudden it starts going up again, not high, but just coming back kind of to normal, that's compensation. Okay, the body recognized that the BP was falling and it vasoconstricted to bring it back up. The body is going to shunt the blood away from the skin, so that's why we get the cold, clammy skin. But it's also going to take it from the kidneys. That's why we don't have urine output. The GI tract, we never need our GI tract to be working when we're in time of crisis. Uh, so that's going to give you the cool clammy skin, hypoactive bowel sounds, and decreased urine output. The perfusion of tissues is inadequate. We know that. That's the whole point of, of shock, right? Acidosis occurs from anaerobic metabolism. So let me just talk about that for a minute. So the metabolism changes from aerobic to anaerobic, and that's because we don't have the oxygen available for aerobic metabolism. Lactic acid accumulates and must be broken down by the liver. Well, the liver needs oxygen for this, and there's no oxygen. So the acid builds up, and that leads to metabolic acidosis. We have a decreased cardiac output for a number of reasons, which leads to decreased tissue perfusion. That gives you a decrease in preload, a decreased cardiac output, a decreased systemic blood pressure, an increase in systemic vascular resistance that raises your diastolic blood pressure and that indicates that there's vasoconstriction happening. So the body is trying to overcome the consequences of anabolic, uh, anaerobic uh, metabolism and they're striving for homeostasis. So that's why all this happens. So the uh, diastolic goes up, the systolic goes down and that's what gives you that narrowing pulse pressure that we talked about before. So they're going to be, uh, they're going to have respiratory problems. Their, their respiratory rate's going to increase because they're trying to get more oxygen in. They're compensating, and that can cause respiratory alkalosis. 
So again, we're not going to get into acidosis and alkalosis. That's third semester. But you know what acid is? Acidosis means there's too much acid. Alkalosis is the opposite. There's not enough acid or there's too much alkaline. So when you try to compensate by breathing differently to get rid of the acid, you may end up causing alkalosis. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. Confusion can occur because of the oxygen, right? Always, always oxygen, okay? So this is a clinically apparent situation. You can see what's happening. There's neurological, hormonal, and biochemical compensatory mechanisms happening here. So pulse pressure, just talked about, um, that's, that's happening. It's narrowing. That means that there is, a, that's a positive sign of vasoconstriction, which means that there's hypovolemia. Well, we already probably figured that out. We know that there's hypovolemia. And so we're vasoconstricting to try to raise up the blood pressure. MAP is also important. That's the average arterial blood pressure within a single cardiac cycle. So do look at the MAP. And as I said earlier, we want it to be greater than 65. All right, so looking at the compensatory stage uh, with hormones. There's baroreceptors. Baro means pressure. So there's pressure receptors around the body that detect the low blood pressure, and so they activate the SNS. Epinephrine's released. We know what epinephrine does, right? It gives you vasoconstriction while maintaining blood to the vital organs. So what's that going to do to the cardiac output? It's going to increase it. What's it going to do to blood pressure? Increase it because it's narrowing the space. What's it going to do to heart rate? Increase it. So those are all the things that we want. We want everything going up. Everything's down right now. We want to bring it back up. Then we have an intracellular fluid shift back to the vascular space. That's also good, right? We're trying to bring in fluid in there. So uh, we're going to have a reabsorption of, of water. We're going to increase vascular, intravascular volume. That increases the blood return that's going back to the heart, which then raises your cardiac output and raises your blood pressure. Other hormones, the posterior pituitary releases ADH. And what does ADH stand for? Antidiuretic hormone. And so does that make you pee or not pee? Antidiuretic makes you not pee. So we're releasing that to help us hold on to the water. So we're reabsorbing water. Again, raising the intravascular volume, increasing blood returning to the heart, increasing cardiac output and blood pressure. I'll give you a hint, all these arrows are going to be up. Okay, we want to put everything up. We want to bring everything back up where it belongs. Next, we have the kidneys activating the renin-angiotensin system. So how that works is renin stimulates angiotensin 1 to be converted to angiotensin 2. And angiotensin 2 is a vasoconstrictor of both arteries and veins. So an ACE inhibitor, that medication, that is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor. So that blocks this from happening. This blocks angiotensin 1 from being converted to angiotensin 2, blocking that vasoconstricting effect. Does vasoconstricting raise or lower blood pressure? Raises it. So when someone's taking an ACE inhibitor, we don't want that to happen. We want to stop that vasoconstricting. So now you know how ACE inhibitors work and why. So the uh, aldosterone is also released. And with aldosterone, it's different from ADH. We think, some people think that both of them hold water. They do. Uh, but the aldosterone, whenever you see aldosterone, circle the S in aldosterone and think sodium because that means that sodium and water are being saved. Okay, so we increase sodium absorption, which causes increased water to be um, absorbed. That leads to increased vascular volume, which increases venous return to the heart, which raises cardiac output, 
and raises blood pressure. So all of these things are happening. The body hasn't, or the person or the, the team hasn't had to do anything, right? This is all the compensatory mechanisms of the body. So in the compensatory stage, if the perfusion deficit is corrected, the patient recovers with no residual sequelae. So that means they're, they just got better, they're fine. If the deficit is not corrected, then they enter the progressive stage. And the progressive stage is what leads to end organ failure. Medications need to be given to mimic the sympathetic nervous system, and what do we call those? Sympathomimetic agents. So we need to do something fast, or they're gonna enter the refractory stage. So the progressive stage begins when the compensatory me mechanisms fail. So that causes a continual drop in cardiac output, a drop in blood pressure, and less oxygen being able to be available for the myocardium. So they have hypoperfusion of vital organs, of all the vital organs, that continues. So things are continuing and getting worse. So aggressive interventions are gonna be needed to prevent multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. <clears throat> so the mechanisms are just not working anymore. The mental status is gonna further deteriorate too because they have continued decreased cerebral perfusion and hypoxia. So the brain is just dying away. Uh, the lungs are gonna fail. There's decreased pulmonary blood flow, so there's less blood uh, going into the lungs. That causes further hypoxemia. Carbon dioxide levels rise. The alveoli collapse. Pulmonary edema occurs, so the lungs are dying. The heart's not getting enough blood. That's gonna lead to dysrhythmias and ischemia. Again, dead tissue doesn't pump very well, so we don't want the heart to die. As your MAP falls below 70, the glomerular filtration rate cannot be maintained. So remember I said we need to have our, our blood pressure up. Usually 90 is kind of the magic number. We want blood pressure to be above 90 or the kidneys aren't going to be perfused. This is saying your MAP also needs to be above 70 for that to happen. So we want to prevent acute kidney injury. Liver function, GI function, and blood function are all going to be affected. Disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, may occur as a complication of shock. So that's uh, what I mentioned earlier. There's an increase in coagulation and a decrease in fibrinolysis. So there are all these little clots forming all over the body. Disseminated means everywhere. So there's all these little clots in the vascular space. Does that sound good? No. So the progressive stage of shock, here's another one of these flow charts. So at the top, we have persistence of precipitating cause. Okay, we weren't able to fix it. We don't know what it is. We didn't fix it. It's still happening. It's persisting. So that gives you persistent hypotension. Blood pressure is still really low. Massive sympathetic nervous system stimulation. Let's look on the right. The beta adrenergic receptor stimulates the myocardium, and that's going to increase your heart rate and decrease myocardial contractility. Both of those things are going to decrease cardiac output, which, follow that over to the pink, progressive tissue hypoxia, anaerobic metabolism, metabolic acidosis, and we're in the same place we were with all the other shocks, right? They're going to die. If we go back up to the left, the alpha adrenergic, alpha adrenergic receptor stimulation, widespread, profound vasoconstriction. So we're constricting everything, and you can see what it's doing there. You can, look, you can read all those little boxes by yourself. It decreases circulating volume, leads to progressive tissue hypoxia, anaerobic metabolism, and metabolic acidosis, and death. So things are not going well. At this point, they are in the irreversible stage of shock, and that judgment is only made in retrospect. So meaning after they die, when they look back at things and go, you know what, at about 
12.15 is when I think she entered the irreversible stage of shock. So the organ damage is so severe that the patient doesn't respond to any treatment and they cannot survive. So they've just kind of turned a corner in a bad way. They have profound hypotension and hypoxemia. The tachycardia worsens, decreased coronary blood flow. So again, the heart's not getting blood. When the heart's not being fed, it can't take care of anyone else. Renal and liver function fail. They'll have cerebral ischemia. So the brain is now dying. Anaerobic metabolism worsens the acidosis. Multiple organ dysfunction progresses to complete organ failure. And that is incompatible with life. So with shock, prevention is key. We need to assess and identify the patients who are at risk and screen patients for allergies. So there's a few things to um, look at here. So we're assessing for shock. Our focused assessment should be based on what? Tissue perfusion. We wanna make sure that everything is being perfused. So we focus our assessments on tissue perfusion. We're looking at um, vital signs, peripheral pulses, their level of consciousness. That tells you if the brain's being perfused. Cap refill, are their fingers and toes being perfused? How's their skin? What's the temp, the color, the moisture? Urine output, are they making any urine? Uh, so we need to assess all these things. That's gonna tell us if the body is being perfused. Uh, we're gonna do um, a brief history of the events leading up to the shock. So did they have surgery? Did they have chest pain, trauma, fall? What happened? When, what was the onset and duration of these symptoms? And then also details of the care received before hospitalization. So um, what, what kind of medication did they take? Did they uh, use their EpiPen if it was a, a anaphylactic situation? Or, you know, what, what, what has been done before? Because we don't want to double dose them with anything. And then allergies. What kind of allergies do they have? And, you know, maybe they ate at a restaurant and they didn't realize there was oyster sauce in something and they have a shellfish allergy. And so we want to know, you know, what did you eat? so we can track things back and figure out what's going on. Also, any history of recent vaccinations, um, because that can sometimes cause uh, some kind of an allergic reaction as well. So we wanna monitor the patient's ongoing physical and emotional status to detect subtle changes in their condition. So we wanna, that's, this is one reason why we need to know our patients. We need to talk to our patients and get to know them and get to know their baseline for one thing, um, that way we can tell if they're clinically deteriorating, if their level of consciousness is going down throughout the day. Um, we also want to plan for prevention and health promotion. So we, that means identify the patients who are at risk. So your elderly patients are always going to be at risk for everything. Uh, those with debilitating illnesses or who are immunocompromised. Surgical patients, trauma patients, anybody that's got a stress response situation happening is going to be at risk. Uh, we also want to monitor fluids, so monitor and maintain a patent IV. Make sure everybody always has a patent IV. Uh, we're going to look at their uh, O2, uh, breath sounds, respiratory rate, so we're always assessing that kind of stuff. And then hand washing ourselves and our patients, so help the patients up to the bed to wash their hands when they go to the bathroom or before they eat. And of course, we're washing our hands all the time, or at least gelling in and gelling out of every room so that we can uh, prevent spreading as many infections as we can. Uh, infections is what causes sepsis. It's not just a little infection and you give them an antibiotic, right? That's the best case scenario. So we really want to do all that we can to prevent infections. Um, careful dressing changes, 
that kind of thing. All the stuff that you know, just do what you know you're supposed to do. All right, some other assessment things. So this is the, what I was saying earlier about the cards that they might give you at the hospital. The ED and inpatient rule of 100. If someone has a known or suspected infection, their BP falls below 100, the heart rate goes above 100, and temp is above 100. If they meet all three of these, consider sepsis and conduct more thorough evaluation. Um, a lot of the charting systems, too, have a built-in warning. If, if you chart these kind of these things, um, it, it'll, it should flash up a warning saying, hey, consider sepsis protocol. Take, take a closer look. And then there's another thing. If uh, any two of the following criteria are met, the nurse should call a rapid response. And this is if the SBP falls below 90 or MAP goes below 65. The temp is greater than 38.3 or less than 36. Heart rate is greater than 90. Respiratory rate is greater than 20. White blood cells are either less than 4 or more than 12, or there's 10% bands. If the PaCO2 is less than 32 or the lactic acid is greater than 4. So with this one, you're going to have to see some labs as well. It's not just looking at vitals. Um, however, you could do it based on vitals because it says if any two of these are met, call rapid response. Any two. So low BP, high heart rate, high respiratory rate, high temp or low temp. Any two of those things happen, you should be taking action. Okay. So other things to consider, cap refill. We're always touching their fingers and toes, checking out the cap refill, making sure there's perfusion. A change in mental status. This is why we need to talk to our patients, get to know them, um, get to know where they're at in their head. Urinary output, less than 30 mils an hour. We're always, I'm always harping on I's and O's, right? We need to do I's and O's. Um, it can happen just that fast. Low pH or HCO3, that's bicarbonate. If that's less than 19, again, you would only know that based on labs, but do look at your labs because sometimes those things may be there. Some interventions for shock, serial focused assessments. That's why I've taught you about the focused assessments for the different body systems. We're going to be uh, doing focused assessments on perfusion in this case. This is what we're looking at with sepsis. So monitor your BP, uh, maintain patent IV, um, fluid replacement. Uh, here's something. So for every one liter of blood loss, they should get three liters of a crystalloid, which is isotonic solutions. That would be LR or 0.9 normal saline. So for every one liter of blood loss, they're going to get three liters of LR or normal saline. They may get colloids, which are volume expanders, and that would be albumin. And think about, remember how albumin works? You put that in the vessels. It's a protein. It acts like a sponge. It pulls fluid in. So in the case of uh, vasodilation and increased capillary permeability, uh, we've got fluid out in the tissues. We want to pull it back into the vascular space. And then we also may give blood, too. If they've lost a lot of blood, well, let's give them back some blood. So our goal of fluid resuscitation is to prevent or limit organ damage. So we want to restore perfusion to the organs. So keep the blood flowing to the toes and to the kidneys and to the brain. So uh, we're going to uh, check the skin, see if it's not cold and clammy anymore. Check urine output, make sure that they are making urine. Uh, we'll keep an eye on the acid and base balance, their mental status, cardiac perfusion. So again, just all those assessments on perfusion. We need to make sure that we have a large bore IV, maybe two. Uh, warmed crystalloids are good, normal saline or LR. And they may do a pressure bag, and there's a picture of that in the slides. That is, it kind of looks like a blood pressure cuff where it's got the, the ball that you squeeze and that increases the pressure. There's a, a bladder that has air in it that you're pumping up, 
and that attaches to the bag or the bag kind of wraps it wraps around the bag and as you pump that up it squeezes the bag so it's like standing there with your hands squeezing the bag to get it to go in faster okay but you don't have time for that so we have this machine or this device so we just pump it up it squeezes out the fluid you come back a couple seconds later pump it up some more and you just kind of keep doing that as you can because if you have someone who's in septic shock you're doing a lot of other things so you don't have time to be standing there squeezing a bag but you can stop over there every couple minutes and pump it back up okay so medications for shock we may use an antihistamine should be benadryl and we would use that for anaphylactic shock in the hospital, we would have that IV or IM, so we can give it very quickly. We're not just going to give them a pill, you know, Benadryl pill, and say, here, take this, and you'll be better in an hour, because we don't have an hour. So if we're going to use Benadryl, it's going to be IV or IM. And it's an antihistamine, so it blocks the massive release of histamine from the allergic reaction. And uh, has some side effects, drowsiness, blurred vision. We're not really concerned about the dry mouth when they're in, sh in shock, anaphylactic shock. We don't care about that. Uh, we do want to keep an eye on the BP, especially with the elderly, and don't take with MAOIs. That's a psych medication. Um, epinephrine is another big one. So um, if they're in the hospital and they're not in full-blown anaphylaxis, they just are kind of starting to have a little you know, uh, difficulty breathing or some hives or something, give them the Benadryl. If they're obviously in respiratory distress, we're going to go right to the epinephrine. So it mimics the SNS. It's a sympathomimetic agent, and it causes peripheral vasoconstriction. It increases the work of the heart, so it increases your heart rate and cardiac output. And it has some side effects. It probably will increase the heart rate. And if they go above 100 beats, 110 beats per minute, we should have them on a monitor. Look out for dyspnea. They could have pulmonary edema. If they have any chest pain, it could result from dysrhythmias that it might cause. And it can cause renal failure or ischemia, not commonly. So previously I'd said to think of epinephrine and norepinephrine as the same. Here I'm going to tell you a little bit of a, a difference. So both epi and norepi are sympathomimetic agents. They both raise the heart rate and blood pressure. Um, the, the difference is, is that epinephrine constricts the small vessels but dilates vessels in the skeletal muscles and the liver. It increases your blood sugar. It can be IM or inhaled. And then... Uh, norepinephrine is psychoactive. It constricts almost all blood vessels. It is the precursor to epinephrine in the body. It's given IV and it increases vascular tone. Vascular tone is the degree of constriction of a vessel relative to its maximally dilated state. So um, that means how big can it get versus how small the vessel can get. So it increases the tone. So basically it tightens it up and makes them smaller. It also causes, because it constricts everywhere, it causes uh, renal vasoconstriction, and that makes it hard for um, blood to get to the kidneys. Also has side effects of dysrhythmias and hypertension. So the bottom line with, with um, the different kinds of shock is assess and reassess and reassess. Think about, is my patient at risk? Well, in the med surge environment, everybody's at risk because they've just had a, a major uh, traumatic thing happen, surgery. Uh, think about what is the role of the RN. So the first role is to assess and report on your uh, findings. And so know when to call a rapid response. Know how to prioritize your care. Know how to prioritize your assessment findings. What's important, what's not important right now. One thing on its own may not be important, but if it's combined with another one or two or three things that are kind of 
borderline, kind of iffy, um, you better stand up and take notice of that. And so that means that that's when you need to start assessing more frequently. So all of your vitals are, uh, you know, let's say they're not meeting that, that rule of 100, but they're pretty darn close. You better stay on top of it because if you don't do anything, they're likely going to go there pretty quickly. So shock can occur very quickly. It can also occur a little at a time. So that's why we always need to monitor our patients and know our patients and be able to be in tune to um, slight little changes. That is all for shock.